jasoncharles.net. Deep talk, deep sounds. And now, cover girl. This is Under the Covers with Claire Connors on jasoncharles.net. This is Claire Connors with Under the Covers. The following is part one of my exclusive two-part conversation with Steve Bloom of CelebStoner.com and former longtime editor of High Times Magazine. Hello, magazine lovers, and welcome to Under the Covers with Claire Connors. That's me. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking to magazine vet Steve Bloom. He is the former editor of High Times. You were there for almost 30 years, if I'm correct. Um, you're also the editor-in-chief of two bookazines focusing on marijuana, uh, the former EIC of Freedom Leaf Magazine and its website, current publisher of celebstoner.com, and um, the author, co-author of two fantastic and really fun books, Pop Pot Culture and Reefer Movie Madness. I'm not doing the subtitles on though, on those. And you um, wrote those with our mutual friend, Shirley Halpern. And shout out to Shirley. We love her. Um, so Steve, unlike most of my guests, we've never actually worked together. And in this world, you know, we've both been doing this for 30 plus years. It's kind of hard to believe that we haven't actually been in the same newsroom or, um, or art department um, as each other. But I have so many questions about working for such a niche for such niche publications like High Times and how they affected your career. Um, but I wanna to get to know you a little bit first. So we just, we just had a little pre-interview, but um, tell me where you were born and raised. I was born in Manhattan, New York, New York. Uh, I was raised in the Bronx, New York, or we say the Bronx. And growing up there, did you have brothers and sisters? I have an older brother who's a writer. Oh, no kidding. Um, and so what did your parents do? Was your, was your mom or dad in the magazine industry? Like, how did you get into magazines? My father was a salesman. My mother worked in retail, but my father uh, is a hobbyist and he did a lot of writing as on the side, so to speak. He was a songwriter, wrote lyrics. Uh, he wrote some articles. Uh, he wrote a screenplay that wasn't sold. Uh, so he kind of kind of guided us a little bit in the direction. He really you know, didn't have all the skills to be what we became. But we uh, we moved. Uh, we learned a little bit from him and both of us. My brother became a sports writer and I became a you know, basically an entertainment journalist. Right. OK. Did you where did you go to college? I went to Lehman College in the Bronx and I went to D. Wood Clinton High School in the Bronx. And I learned most of what I know today at both those uh, schools, especially at Clinton, where I was the sports editor. I followed my brother at the Clinton News. He was there two years ahead of me. Uh, he steered me into the journalism program class there. He had to be in the class to be on the newspaper, and that was a three-year commitment. Uh, learned a lot, a very good teacher, uh, became the sports editor of my senior year. It was an award-winning paper. Uh, then I went down the block to Lehman, literally, you know, in the Bronx, that whole run of schools up in the Bronx, the university area along the reservoir, and, uh, and I went there, and I just walked into the newspaper, you know, my first semester and became a cub reporter. 
uh, and they started giving me news assignments. But they they seemed to notice some talent, and they uh, elevated me to features editor for my my sophomore year, and that kind of steered me more into music and uh, entertainment work. And so I started doing that, doing interviews uh, when you know somebody came to campus to perform or something like that. And one thing led to the other, and uh, by the time I was uh, uh, junior, I was the editor-in-chief of the Meridian newspaper. So I look at that as the minor leagues, you know, high school and college really prepared me for the pros. Right. Were, were your family magazine readers, did you have any favorite magazines that you read when you were growing up? I would say standard 60s reading material like Life and, you know, Time and Newsweek and that kind of stuff, I suppose. If we had new magazines around the house, but I remember as a kid, I liked sport because I was into sports and I love Rolling Stone. So as I got older, you know, Rolling Stone and and all the cool magazines, I was really influenced by Rolling Stone and the Village Voice. That's really what I wanted to be. One of those people writing for those papers and magazines. I wanted to be like them. I totally understand that. My first job when I moved to New York was working at the Village Voice. So it was like a dream come true to be able to get that first gig and be like, oh my God, the Village Voice. So what was your first job after you graduated and you got your degree in journalism? Well, no, I didn't even graduate. Um, so, um, you know, above the era, you know, this is the early 70s. Uh, for me, college was a three-year experience, not four years. I just didn't need a fourth year. I was kind of burnt out after editing the newspaper in my my final semester, which was my uh, my spring semester of my third year. I was a great student for the first two years. But then once I became the editor, I just dove into the newspaper to the point where I stopped going to class. And, and we made the paper from a 12 page to a 24. We put, made a lot of extra work for us because I wanted to be the village voice, you know, right. wanted to be substantial and put in a lot of extra time. And I mean, I'm the only one I think suffered for it because um, I didn't know anybody else who quit school after the newspaper like I did. But but I finished that three years and a friend of mine was also leaving school early. And we both had an interest in traveling around the country. We had traveled our first two uh, college summers because I was going to school for nothing essentially at Lehman back then city schools were free um, I didn't have to pay you know I didn't have to work in the summers to pay off anything you know like a lot of my friends who went away to school they came home and worked all summer I went away <laughs> I went away across the country uh, the first two summers and I just had the love of traveling around America so me and a same friend took off in the uh the fall of 74 for like real life traveling not just like summer traveling like okay we're going into no man land you know a little bit of you know before they called it that we went out into the middle of america and you know and looked for that for the country and to see what was out there i was kind of fascinated with the west you know i wasn't in new york or wasn't you know we didn't know from you know huge mountains and you know, redwood trees and things like that. So I kind of wanted to see all that stuff, all the spectacular uh, scenery of the West. I really wanted to see. And I also was very influenced by Jack Kerouac and the Beats. Uh, I read all those books. So I kind of, my touring around America sort of followed, you know, Jack Kerouac's leads, Denver, San Francisco, Mexico, New York, you know, that's kind of where they went. New Orleans, <laughs> I hit all those spots. Nice. Were you driving? Was it the cross town? Yeah, hiking, buses, you know, okay. all of the above. You know, we just did the whole thing. You know, it was a lot of fun. We were hippies on the road for a couple of years. I lived in San Francisco for a year during that time. Uh, so that was kind of my summer of love year in 1975-76. Uh, living in Haight-Ashbury. It was very cheap. We had a great time. Um, and then I continued more traveling before I came home. And then once I came home, I settled down to, you know, become the writer that I 
supposed to be. <laughs> were you, okay, so um, were you ever following the dead? Because I was in a Volkswagen van and following the dead after I graduated. <laughs> no, not really. I mean, kind of during that period, the dead, I think were in a little hiatus around then. Um, uh -huh. But, you know, I, I definitely, you know, big deadhead. I saw them, you know, in, originally in 1970, um, numerous times around New York. And then uh, kind of took a break from the dead uh, and didn't really get back into them for the most part until I got the high times. Uh, so I, uh, but I never did any touring except in the nineties when I was covering the dead for high times, I went to a lot of shows, but I never got on the road. I was never like a touring dead end. <laughs> you weren't running around. I need a miracle. I need a miracle. <laughs> luckily, luckily I usually had a ticket in advance. <laughs> That's good. Um, so let's talk about your marijuana consumption. Um, I'm curious at what point did things kind of converge was your, was your first job when you settled back down in New York, was it, um, were you involved in marijuana coverage or were you doing uh, other? No, other no, 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 let's, let's uh, trace this back because this is like 78 um, and I didn't start working for high times until 88. So, okay. my, so my, 10 years, my 10 years, I was a marijuana smoker, but not someone who was writing about it. I mean, occasionally, because I was a music journalist, occasionally I'd, you know, an interview somebody, we'd smoke a joint or do a line or something. But, <laughs> um, but you know, so that was fairly common because there were so many musicians I interviewed. But basically, I started my career as a music journalist. And my first main gig was with the Soho Weekly News in New York. Oh, yeah. So that's, that's where I got my start. The voice was too hard to get into. The voice was the major leagues. And the Soho News was maybe just the step down because it was newer and it was, you know, there were opportunities there, apparently. So I was able to get in the door uh, there as a music journalist with people like Roy Traken and Ira Kaplan and uh, a couple of other really good writers there who went on to good things. Uh, but um, yeah, so I, um, but the funny thing there was I did, literally, you know, when I came back to New York, sort of figure out you know, how I was going to start my writing career, decided I would, I was into music and I played some music, but really wasn't a musician. I figured, well, I'll write about music. So I decided just to go in that direction. And I went over to the Soho Weekly News. I asked for a cold call. I went and asked for the music editor, Peter Ochio Grosso. Uh, and he came out and he said, what can I do for you? Came out to the lobby. It was in a Soho office on Broadway. And I, and I said, I'd like to do some writing for the paper. And he said, well, what do you want to write about? And I said, I threw him the real curveball that got me in the door. I said, mm, R&B, funk soul, that kind of stuff. He's looking at this white guy who was asking him to do reviews of black music and, and he didn't have anybody doing that. So he said, well, like what? And I said, brothers, Johnson, cool in the gang, you know? And it's like, okay, <laughs> it was so funny. He was like, okay, you know, nobody else was doing that. I, he, had, he didn't know me at all. Never saw anything I ever written in my life. Didn't have too many clips. And he gave me a break, you know, five, $10 a review. And I started doing Album reviews, concert reviews led to a James Brown cover story. Nice. You know, it led to a cover story about video games that led to a book uh, on video games. Kind of took me in a you know different directions in my freelancing career. But Soho News was really the, the starting point for me. I was That's there there on a heavy freelance basis for about four years. Wasn't there a famous editor of Soho News, or am I mixing it up? That it wasn't a, a woman, right? Well, Michael Goldstein owns Soho News. I'm trying okay. to think who the editor was per se. I think he was the editor. There were a lot of good people came out of Cynthia Heimel was one of the best writers there. She, she's passed away. There's yeah. a lot of good people. Doug Ireland wrote there. He's passed away. It was really great stuff. Yeah. David, Hirsch, David Hirschkowitz uh, oh, yeah. was, came, came out of Soho News. He started paper. 
the de details came out of Soho News. That's uh, what I people, thought. It was people a detail. started details. Leslie Vincent and a few other people. Oh, Annie, Annie, uh, Annie Flanders. I'm sorry. Thank you. That's Annie, what bring, yeah. Bringing me back. Annie Flanders and uh, Leslie Vincent, who is the park director, they started details. Right. I was reading um, my weird little bookstore in Minneapolis had little, you know, cult magazines in there. And that was when I first started to get to know Soho News and um, and then the first details. So it was a very it was a really great time in, you know, upstart journalism. Yeah, there were good opportunities then. You didn't get paid much, but at least there were a lot of opportunities. Yeah, um, it was yeah. all about getting your clips, I guess, at that point, right? So for, for sure. And, and amazingly, you know, all these years, like Chick Korea just passed away. And I look back to my Chick Korea interview for Soho News. You know, I just covered a lot of people. You think back to all the people you covered, you know, and sadly, when people pass away, you go looking back and oh, shit, I wrote about her, yeah. him or her too, you know. One of my friends, Jim Farber, his one of his biggest jobs is writing obituaries for the Times. I'm very jealous of you. <laughs> so, um, so let's talk about how you broke into writing, you know, being focused on on uh, marijuana. Was it always connected with the music? Well, kind of I mean, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a smoker going back to when I was in high school. And it was something that, you know, me and my friends liked. And, and yeah, it connected us with music because we would smoke and listen to music and, and get a kick out of whatever it was we were listening to, uh, go to concerts and immediately light up. And so that was just kind of came with the territory, marijuana, music, a great combination. Um, you know, like everybody out there, I was nothing, you know, I wasn't discovering anything that, you know, people didn't seem to already know. Um, but, you know, so I just was, you know, a pothead, basically, you know, one of those people in the family, when everybody gets together, a few of the stoners step out back and, you know, we all get high and come back giggling or something. Everybody looks at you like, oh, the stoners, they're back, you know. And so, you know, kind of fit into that, you know, family you know, kind of structure, um, always a little bit slightly outcast and that's respect and and not a lot of respect for it too by the way um back in those days you know uh and then when i you know ended up in high times you know i think my brother thought it was the worst career move i could have ever made really? uh, oh yeah he didn't think that was a good move you know uh years later he respected it you know when the laws started to change and he kind of realized that maybe it had a little something to do with it but you know back then it's like what are you doing working for high times? You know, I don't think he, you know, honestly, I didn't really know high times very well. You know, even though I was a stoner, I really didn't read the magazine. Like right. I told you, I was, I was into Rolling Stone, Village Voice, New Times, uh, those types of new journalism, you know, papers, magazines, they were the ones, the, the weeklies, the monthlies, uh, those are the ones that really influenced me. And high times, which by the way, was doing the same thing, I just wasn't aware of. Right. Uh, the first five years of High Times is really a golden era of great writing and great magazine production, uh, large 170, 80 page issues, wow. uh, you know, uh, and the magazine was a real success story from the second it came out in 1974. I didn't join High Times till 1988, so I missed the right. first 15 years. Was it always uh, monthly? High Times started as a quarterly. A quarterly. Okay, that's why I was confused about it. Was, it was quarterly. Uh, first issue is June 74. I think they came out with one more that year. And then by 75 was quarterly. And then 76, sometime during 76, uh, towards September, it went monthly. Okay. So it was obviously successful enough that they could afford to do that. And it meant making more money. They, they had good advertising? Did yeah. they have good advertising? Okay. Yeah. Every, every piece of paraphernalia. Right, exactly. Now, you know, the paraphernalia industry was under attack in the 80s during Reagan. So right. that really cut 
High Times ad revenue is significant. Uh-huh. But uh-huh. It was a bit of a boom in the 70s during the Carter era. Okay. Do you know what the numbers were in terms of the sales? Like, did you have subscribers? Well, I mean, back then versus more recently, I mean, back then, you know, there were you know, million circulation figures right. and, uh, you know, four, four five, 600,000, you know, per issue. Uh, High Times was really a rocket. Uh, I mean, it went really up there fast and stayed up there for a while. Uh, and then I think came down to earth during the, uh, the Reagan era and then really struggled to survive during that time, losing advertising, uh, cutting back on pages. Uh, the look of the magazine really went downhill. Uh, when I got there in 88, the magazine kind of looked terrible. Okay. Not to say that the art direction was bad. It was just that it just looked cheap. Uh, the Half the magazine was newsprint. Half the magazine was, was, yeah. color, was color. So they liked the idea back in the old days of having a newsprint section to have a the high witness news section and newsprint because it looked kind of cool. And then in a section in the back, you know, it was also sort of like a some sort of you know, newsprint section in the back. But then by the time I got there, that newsprint was really chintzy and, uh, and they were just doing it, you know, to save money. Right. So when you came in, what was your first job there? I was news editor. News editor. Uh, now, my, I had a friend named John Holmstrom uh, who I had met. John was the editor of Punk Magazine. Okay. Uh, and he's a famous New York City cartoonist. And uh, I met him when I was editing a video game magazine. And which is early 80s when I made a little little career switch for a minute. And John was doing reviews of video games in heavy metal. And a friend of mine tipped me off to that. And I hired him to do some reviews for my magazine. And several years later, John ended up at High Times. And he he hired me to do some proofreading and a couple of articles. And then one day I got a call saying, we're looking for a part-time news editor. Would you be interested? And, you know, it's not really what I was doing. I was, you know, doing, you know, music writing and maybe, you know, going, you know, into sports or video games or things that were related to entertainment. But, you know, marijuana and news, that wasn't something I knew too much about. But, you know, it was kind of a gig. I kind of always said, you know, I always wished, you know, I'd written written for Rolling Stone through the 80s as a freelancer. I always kind of wished the Rolling Stone was going to hire me, but they didn't. But High Times did. So I took the next best job. I, I personally think it's a great career move because you're, you know, you're, you're so focused and obviously it was popular at that point. When you moved into the position, did you see yourself as sort of, I, I need to fix this? Or did you said that wasn't looking very good? Things weren't great. Yeah, for you. That, wasn't, that wasn't my job so much. I was just kind of learning, you know, how high times was running. Right. So I, didn't know, I didn't understand the economics of the company okay. and I kind of learned why. So it wasn't really anybody's fault other than, you know, the, you know, just there wasn't enough money going around to spend to make the magazine look better. By the nineties, when the magazine kind of had a rebirth, Uh, when Clinton came in and, uh, and there was sort of a new interest in marijuana legalization again, especially with the medical uh, issues sort of taking off, then things started to pick up for the magazine and the magazine really looked a lot better. The art direction improved, uh, the page numbers increased and the magazine kind of got back to where it was in the seventies. Heyday. Yeah, it was, it was another golden period for high times the nineties era. So had they always done celebrity covers or was that a new thing when you came along? Uh, there were a few famous ones. There was a famous Mick Jagger celebrity okay. cover years ago, Blondie. Um, they did occasional reggae covers. Sure. You know, they, they had Andy Warhol was on a cover. Um, you know, going back years ago, you know, they had some of their heroes on the cover, but it wasn't something they regularly did. A lot of their covers were illustrated. 
Um, and uh, a lot of more marijuana themes. So it could be used a pile of weed kind of stuff um, and or a big pot plant. Uh, and those became the most popular covers, just put a huge pot plant on the cover and that usually would sell the best. So the problem with that is that caused the difficulty to convince the higher ups to put people on the cover because no matter who the person was, it never sold as well as a big juicy marijuana plant. <laughs> so I always, had, I always had to fight them hard to put the people on the cover. But my argument was that we needed to do this. You couldn't put a pot plant on every cover. You needed to expand to reach the magazine. It also helped placement in newsstands and in magazine stores. So you'd be in a place, maybe they put your magazine in the music section now because you had a musician on the cover versus burying it in the tattoo section or wherever it ended up. Right, right. Um, so tell, let's talk about the first cover that you booked. I want, I want to really hear how your process was in terms of, I'm a cover booker too. And, you know, we have, we have a system, how it works. Oh, and this is it. That's, um, that's Cypress Hill, right? I like, I like, I like this one so much. It's, well, I, I took this home from high times when I left there, you know, plaque, I, I grabbed it. It's mine. It's mine. Yeah. It's my baby. Yay. So Tell us how you did it. Did you call the publicist for Cypress Hill? Did they have a record coming out? Were you timing it? Did were you, you know what was your whole thought process on booking that cover? Uh, it was it was uh, you know Cypress Hill was new. They were just breaking in like 1991, uh, and uh, and they came to our attention at high times uh, because they were marijuana enthusiasts. They sang about it on their record, and they also wanted to be uh, involved in the legalization movement, and they contacted the normal organization, National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, and became like a spokesman for them. So they really stepped it up immediately. They were the first of the bands that had any, showed any real interest in, you know, more than just getting stoned. They really wanted to change the laws and really get involved as advocates. But there was really nobody ahead of them. They were really kind of the first. So, so they started this whole movement, especially in hip hop. And uh, so I believe we heard from Howard Wolfing, the publicist from Sony. Um, Rough House was their label. Sony was their distributor. Howard worked for Sony. And, you know, I just knew him as a publicist and, you know, whatever, you know, he had, he would tip me off on. But this one was perfect. And, and you know, he, I, I believe he came to High Times and said, you know, would you be interested in an interview with Cypress Hill? Wow. And, and I liked their music and I was interested. Uh, and this is kind of the beginning for me to sort of start moving more in the direction of doing music coverage. When I left um, being news editor after two years, the editor in chief, Steve Hager, said, hey, uh, uh, I see you're putting a lot of music stuff in the news. Why don't we just create a music section in the back that you could kind of do an entertainment section and I'll hire somebody else's news editor. I said, fine. So I started doing that. We started doing articles on blues traveler and bands like that, all the hippie bands in New York and started a kind of an art section in the back. And that's what kind of sprung into, you know, starting to do feature stories on groups and put them on the cover. So Cypress Hill was the first that came along. Even though they weren't very popular yet, we kind of went with it. I'm surprised I was able to sell that because nobody knew them uh, really. Um, they really were just brand new. Right. Um, but I don't know how somehow or other I was able to sell, you know, everybody there you know, on this idea of a cover. And so I remember I saw them at a concert the night before they played the Apollo Theater. I remember they were fifth on the bill. There wasn't a lot of respect for Cypress Hill in New York at the moment. It was Naughty by Nature and Black Sheep and all those great New York groups. And they were kind of ticked off being fifth on the bill. I remember going back to the hotel with them and, you know, screw the New Yorkers. And, <laughs> uh, and so, uh, but anyway, we had a schedule for a photo shoot for the next day. 
And, uh, and you know, you never know with bands, they're going to show up on time. And it was an early one, too, with Andrew Brusso. And they got there at 9 a.m. or something. It was an early one. I mean, we never did photo shoots that early, but it was the beginning of doing our shoots. And I guess later on, we'd start doing them later. But that one, they were there right on time, which was just amazing. Uh, and so it was just the beginning. It was a really nice, clean photo shoot. Andrew stacked them up, you know, on top of each other with the three heads. And that makes for a really good cover. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, with the imagery of what we're working with, the kind of the narrow image on a cover and slot your cover lines on the side. It yeah. was genius. So that was the one that's that worked. That was the one that, you know, that we uh, uh, we went ahead with. And in addition to that, we did a centerfold. High Times was famous for its marijuana bud centerfolds. And we did a centerfold with Be Real teaching the world how to roll a blunt. Wow. Nobody knew anything about blunts then either. It was brand new in hip hop. Uh, it was kind of popular in Jamaican community, but it really was just crossing over into the hip hop world. And now everybody by reading High Times could understand how you would break it up and roll it up and make a blunt. So that was the first time. And that did very well, that cover, for some strange reason. You know, I'll never really understand the dynamics of the readership and why they would buy something and not something else. But they went for that one. That's amazing. Did For a regular photo shoot, you know, you get clothing, you have hair and makeup, you have all of those, you know, it's a, it's a complicated puzzle that has to be put together for a shoot. Add in marijuana, how, how do things go when everyone's smoking pot and high and like, what's it like when you're doing a shoot? Great question. I mean, first of all, we never focus much on hair and makeup. Okay, got it. You know, it's kind of like, stoner guys and women you know we're not you know maybe okay a little touching up here and there okay yes we would have a makeup artist i'll admit to that but we didn't <laughs> we didn't have a clothing rack and we didn't have that kind of stuff to try out this and try out that it was like where would you want to the shoot we're probably not going to use much of your body anyway it's probably good mostly head holding something a joint something like that. so we're not going to need the lower area so the shirt and the everything else is not going to matter too much but the biggest thing that mattered at the photo shoot was the marijuana itself. You know, we had to have the best and it's high times. People expect the best. And we didn't always have access to the best. You know, we'd have to really do some shopping around. There was some last minute, you know, we don't have anything. We'll try and get something and we'll see what we can do. And if we can't, we'll have to reschedule. We actually would rent marijuana from people and, and, and give it back to them uh, as opposed to buying it. The company was a little cheap about us spending too much on these props because you could easily spend a couple of thousand dollars on weed for a photo shoot. You know, and the funny thing was when you put weed under a lights and stuff like that, it could degrade it. So the, uh, the the owner of the weed may not be too pleased about that, too. And they'd be at the photo shoot. I'd say, take the damn lights off the weed. It's drying up, you know. So you'd have to shoot fast and get it done quickly and not let it sit around and dry up and all day. And the other thing was with the actual subject, the subject, number one, if they started smoking before the shoot, they would often get red eyed, right? And they would often get forgetful. Right. And you couldn't follow up with an interview. Oh, yeah. I remember one time in particular, he didn't end up on the cover, but JK from Jamiroquai. Oh, yeah. I love that group. And I, I like that. Group. I was friends with Jay a little bit. And Jay came up to do a photo shoot. There wasn't a cover, but we had a huge amount of pot for that one. And he got so stoned that he walked out of that photo shoot and said, listen, let's do the interview by phone tomorrow because I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about right now. 
excuse my language. But no, sometimes, no, no. sometimes, sometimes you really had. I remember Aaron Lewis from Stained, super red eyed. I mean, it's like within ten minutes, you know, we couldn't shoot him. You know, we had to wait and kind of clean. You know use some binding yeah and and start all over you know so we kind of learned the hard way is like not let them get high before the shoot although they wanted to you know you have to hold it back a little bit can we just wait a minute let's get the shoot and then you can smoke all you want but oftentimes they wanted to smoke the second they walked in the door and they saw this great stuff and we were hard to tell them no so we take our chances and see what would happen I can only imagine. And also the other side of that, I had that experience at many cover shoots where the celebrity decided that she wanted to take home half the clothes that we had gotten for her. And, uh, you know, the the expensive items would sort of disappear and walk off the set. Um, I can only imagine that you had a few instances where things walked off the set. (laughs) Well, it's pretty funny because, I mean, we would always give a as a gift, you know, whoever was at the shoot, we'd give them, you know, a nice big bud or a couple or something nice in a bag or, or a gift bag, maybe a brownie and this and that. And we just, you know, give them stuff to go home with. And, you know, most people that they were content with that, but not Snoop Dogg. Uh, <laughs> I mean, Snoop Dogg, we gave him these two beautiful buds and it's like, that's all. And, uh, I was, and then he wanted more. And so because he wanted more, to be honest, it, we didn't own it, so we had to now negotiate selling it to him, you know, which I stayed out of, but, but somebody else negotiated with him on this, and next thing you know, he took the whole thing, the whole bag that we had, and he walked away with it, but paid for it, as I recall, Okay. because we didn't own it. And then the funny thing was, the next day, after that photo shoot, Snoop Dogg did an interview at the High Times office the next day. When I came into the office the next day, Snoop was on Howard Stern that morning talking about how he was up at high times the day before and how they have the bomb weed up at high times. And I was always a little paranoid about giving away company secrets. They didn't want to be raided. Uh, so I walk in the door and I'm kind of greeted by, you know, one of the uh, bosses. And she says, did you see here Howard Stern this morning and talking about all the great weed we have up in high times? And they're kind of looking at me like, you know, thanks. You know, you, you, you shouldn't, you shouldn't have done that. And I just kind of laughed at us. It sounds like great publicity for us. And I kind of skulked down the hallway to my office. Snoop came back into the office that day, next day, that same day. And he was completely out of the weed that, that he had, had acquired from us, which was at least a couple of or and then he needed a whole new batch as well so that was another thing again i wouldn't do that stuff but somebody else on the grow team up at high times was sort of like help him out or whatever but the nice thing about snoop dogg that day he he did the interview uh with a guy named pat charles and he sat down in my office that day and signed things for everybody in the office and he sat down at my desk and there was a line at my door as people waited to get things signed he was really You know, back in the days when Snoop Snoop was kind of accessible. Is he not now? I don't think we could get that interview ever again today. That no. type of interview with him. Only if he did it with Martha, apparently. <laughs> right, exactly. There's your there's your next parade cover. That would be oh God. I if only, if only. <laughs> so you were responsible for most of the celebrity bookings. Did anyone else step in and do some of the booking, or were you pretty much the go-to person? Yeah, there were a few people up there, the editor in chief, you know, he had a couple of things up his sleeve. Uh 
we had a, a, a staff photographer and writer named Malcolm McKinnon who went off by, by the name Dan Sky, great photographer. He did a lot of uh, covers. He would bring things in on his own. Uh, he brought in Jay and uh, Silent Bob cover, Kevin Smith. Uh, he would do a lot of sort of older uh, celebrities like, uh, well, he did a Woody Harrelson cover for us. He did a David Crosby, which was not on high times, that was on a hemp times. We had a alternative magazine back then too. And so he would do a lot of that. Uh, so it would be a few of us up at the office. Everybody wanted to bring in celebrity covers. Uh, you know, one time uh, I had brought in a cover on a, a Red Man and Method Man cover. We had them separately and we never had them together. So I did a shoot with them and it wasn't necessarily the greatest photos for some reason, and I don't know why, and so it wasn't really loved up there. So I remember I went to South by Southwest and came back, and they replaced the cover with the game. So, you know, some things happened, you know, it just they went over went over my head on that one and said, we didn't like this one enough, and we didn't think maybe they were hot enough. But I kind of regret it because Redman and Method Man should have been on the cover of High Times. Yeah, no, and, and you can't revisit something like that, right? Like, well, they were a little mad. <laughs> obviously you can't revisit with that you get you get get burned sometimes when you you know you set up a cover and then up at the office it doesn't go over and you got approvals and then they kind of can it and then you have to go back to the publicist and they're not happy speaking of publicists what was your you know i all of the magazine covers i booked for they knew what the they knew what the covers were they knew they understood what you were going for but i had to get people like at shape i had to get women in bikinis it was a horrible phone call to call a publicist and say uh penelope cruz would she ever be in a bikini and they're like no she's a big star why would she do that what were some of the most memorable responses from publicists when you called um about putting their a client of theirs on high times well you know i remember you know my difficulty in securing a ziggy marley cover okay and um i'm forgetting the name of the publicist at virgin at the time she was a sweet publicist but she um Ziggy was still with the Melody Makers and they were putting out, you know, albums in their early uh, 90s, late 80s, early 90s, you had a lot of success in the 80s and continued into the early 90s. And, and, you know, once I started doing all this music stuff at high times, you know, I kind of thought the Marley's, you know, would be perfect. And High Times had an old relationship with Bob Marley. High Times cover with Bob Marley is one of the most famous covers the magazine ever did in 1976. Bob didn't do a lot of interviews and loved the magazine. So I thought, you know, there's a natural, you know, to get Ziggy, you know, on the cover or at least an interview, but hopefully a cover. So I contacted the publicist and she kind of like blew me off the first time around. You know, I don't think so or blah, blah, blah. And it's like, really? You know, Marley, Ziggy, High Times? Yeah, hello. It's kind of like a natural, but it was still a little new to them. They really kind of, you know, it was still early 90s, you know, marijuana, you know, was still, you know, you know, people were hesitant. And um, and then this next album, next album cycle came and I got a call from the same publicist saying Ziggy wants to do it. So the, the lesson there is, you know, is publicists should tell their artists what the offers are. And then if they don't agree with the offer, they can tell them why, but they don't make the decision for them. Right. They don't tell them what they should or shouldn't do. They advise them. I don't think this is a good idea, but it's on the table. So it was, you know, now on the table and she put it out there and Ziggy said, yes. So that's how that happened because she told him that it was on the table and he said, yes. So that was a good example of just how it can get done, but how you have to kind of work around, you know, being blocked a little bit by a publicist until 
you know, the publicist, you know, decides it's time. Other times, you know, I, we were knocking on Willie Nelson's door for years. We had met Willie in the early 90s when he was sort of in a down period for him and he was being chased by the IRS. We put him on the cover back then, uh, kind of an advocacy cover. And he had previously appeared on kind of a novelty cover in the 70s, but never was, you know, was on high time. So it was kind of a long dance with Willie to get a real good solo Willie cover. And just because, I don't know, the people around him just weren't helpful or they just, that's something they really were interested in. Or, and then finally got a call from uh, Jim Flamio. And Flamio was working uh, with the album called Countryman, which was Willie's album that was a reggae-themed stoner album and uh, with a big pot leaf on the cover. And Jim gives me a call and says, I think I got Willie for you. So this is years later, things happen. You set things up and then it takes 10 years to happen sometimes. If you're there long enough, good things will happen, I suppose. So true. I mean, you plant the seed and you never know when it's going to come back around and, and blossom on your cover. Right. Did you have a Moby Dick? Like, who did you want? And it just never, never came Bill Maher. Bill Maher? Yeah, Bill Maher. Uh, Always wanted Bill Maher. Uh, you know, I just, uh, I, I really worked hard to get Bill, but Bill was difficult. And uh, I think Bill had this thing about preaching to the converted, number one. He didn't right. think it was necessary to True. appear in high times, you know. And, uh, I'm not sure why he believed this, but, you know, that's, he's a contrarian to begin with. So, you know, that's an opposite view uh, where others would kind of like the opportunity. And, uh, and then I, there was a, uh, a normal conference in San Francisco that I attended a bill was speaking at. And I set up Jay Blakesburg, the photographer, to shoot him. And, but I didn't set it up in advance with Bill. And basically, I asked Normal was okay that, you know, we do a little photo with Bill before, you know, in the green room, something like that before he goes on or something like that. And they said, sure. And uh, so I went there with Jay. But I, I, I know Bill didn't really have people around him to contact to do this. So I just winged it. We came there with a the photographer and he just said, no, he won't do it. He wouldn't do the photos. He wouldn't do a thing. He wouldn't hold a joint. He wouldn't do a thing that would be a good photo for high times. He just was no. Just no, no, no. So that was disappointing. Uh, and uh, but at the same time, he was friendly, you know, to me. Uh, but he just didn't want to go that far. I think he was hiding. You know, some people, you know, Bill took years for him to actually light up a joint on real time. You know, it took him years, even though he would talk about it all the time. Finally, one day he said, "I'm going to light up a joint. Screw it!" And he lights up a joint on real time. But it took him years to do that. So who knows? Maybe if I was still in high times now, we'd finally say, "Okay, I'll do the damn cover." Um, there was one that disappointed me was uh, Tom Petty. You know, Petty did that song. Uh, you know how make you know how it makes me feel. Uh, let's get to the point. Roll another joint. Uh, came out in 1993 or 94, uh, and he was being represented by MSO, uh, Mitch Schneider organization. No Mitch, yep. <laughs> and uh, he gave me a real hard time with the Black Crows. Uh, they should have. They could have been so much friendlier. But he was but so. Got him. <laughs> no, yeah, barely. That's a good example of them not providing a crappy cover, you know, thanks to them, that it should have been a much better image and they should have worked with us closer, but that was MSO. Uh, so I contact Schneider after that comes out and I basically say, you know, can we get an interview with Tom Petty? And his basically his response to me was, Tom does not want to be the poster boy for marijuana. Okay. That was his answer. So, okay, fine. But, you know, what kind of answer is that from a from a publicist uh, to high? Well, it's not a smart did, answer. Did he, did he ask Tom? Right. Probably not. That was them saying that. Well, let's talk about. I'm very curious about 
you know, marijuana is still illegal in large parts of the, of America. It's on its way. Thank God. But that back in the day when there was no, nothing, how were you handling, you know, those responses of like, well, it's illegal. Like, why would my client be on the cover of something? Is that, was that never an issue? No, 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 because, you know, generally we weren't knocking on doors that didn't make sense. You know, we weren't going to, um, Taylor Swift or something, or some, you know, she was before the time, but I'm saying somebody, you know, who would be a very mainstream American artist, you know, we weren't going to, we weren't knocking that. I mean, Tom Petty was pretty mainstream American artist, but here's a guy doing a song, you know, about marijuana. So obviously he's making a stand a little bit here. He didn't have to write that song, you know? So, so those were the times when we kind of jumped in, you know, the door opened, you know, okay, here's an opportunity and the door slammed shut. So it doesn't, you know, sometimes the door would be open and sometimes, I mean, I would say, you know, we didn't do very many mainstream, you know, people. I would think Mila Jovovich was kind of mainstream. Right, right. I was going to uh, ask. Francis McDormand is pretty Francis. mainstream. Those are oddities, really, how we got those covers. I was going to say that um, what's the ratio male, female um, for the covers? Is it mostly men that you that were on the covers? Yeah, I would think so. I mean, we just didn't have that many female options. I will tell you another story. I will tell you about Sarah Silverman. um, And that was a disappointment for me that I had that turned down by higher ups at high times. You know, again, you know, Sarah was, you know, how popular was Sarah about eight, 10 years ago uh, when she had, you know, her comedy special out. But, you know, she was cutting edge. And and here was somebody, especially knowing through our friend Shirley Halperin, who knew Sarah and knew that Sarah was a big pothead. Right. And, and so uh, and she mentioned it occasionally in her act. And, you know, but uh, but she was, you know, it wasn't that well known yet. And so, right. so uh, you know, the opportunity came, you know, for for possibly a, a cover. You know, Shirley, I think, even suggested, you know, that I reach out to her management and. Uh, we had a big discussion over it and they were interested and I brought it to the table. I said, I got an approval for a Sarah Silverman cover. I got it turned down. They were like, they were like, who's Sarah Silverman? And, um, and so, you know, sometimes you have to do things ahead of time because we would get people early when they're not that big yet. You know, we, we, we did a cover with Sasha Baron Cohen when he was Ali G, you know, so, so you would, would high times get him today? Probably not. But we, got, but, we, but we got him then. So right. with the Sarah Silverman one, the real kick in the butt there was that two weeks later, the New York Times did a big interview with Sarah Silverman. The same person, you know, the publisher came to me and said, can you get Sarah now? You know, I went back to her and, they, and I went back to her people and they gave me a big boot in the butt laugh, you know, like, go away. Here's, here's, a, here's, a, here's a follow-up to that. So I met some event in New York and Sarah Silverman's there. And this is post all this happening, but not that long after, maybe uh, a few months. And I and I never met her. I go over and I say hello and I say I'm Steve from Heights. And she goes immediately. So you're the guy who wouldn't put me on the cover of High Times. <laughs> and I say no, not me, not me. That wasn't me. I tried so hard. I was ready for her. I had a joint in my hand and I said, Here, Sarah, take this. And she took the joint and she ran away. Oh, that was the end. It was the funniest <laughs> thing. So I, I, I took the hit for it, but you know, it wasn't my fault. Mm. You've been listening to part one of my exclusive two-part conversation with Steve Bloom. For part two of our conversation, make sure to subscribe to Under the Covers with Claire Connors wherever you get your podcasts and always live and direct on jasoncharles.net podcast network, arts and culture channel. You've been listening to Under the Covers with 
Claire Connors on jasoncharles.net. For more information about Claire Connors, a.k.a. Claire the Celebrity Booker, go to Claire the Celebrity Booker on Instagram. I didn't know this would be out this month. JasonCharles.net Deep talk, deep sounds. That was so deep.